One of my favorite musicians is a guy named Don Henley. Uh, he was one of the founding members of the Eagles, but he also had a really you know pro prolific solo career. And one of his songs from the late 80s, I think, has been stuck in my head this week. It's got a great hook. Uh, Don Henley says, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter, but my will gets weak and my thoughts seem to scatter. And see, it's a song, if you listen to the lyrics, it's a song about lost love and regret. He's swallowed up with regret. He's trying to figure out what could have gone wrong in this relationship, and so he wants to get down below the surface. He wants to get down to the heart of things in hopes that maybe the wounds can be healed and there can be some forgiveness. And I was thinking about that. You know, we, we use phrases like this all the time. To get down to the heart of a matter, that means that we're, we're trying to get down to the real essence of something. We're not satisfied with just kind of skimming the surface. We want to know what the essence is, the truth, the core of something, the heart of it. We'll talk about how an athlete has a lot of heart, plays with a lot of heart. Well, what do we mean? We mean that this, this athlete maybe doesn't have all the physical tools, maybe not the biggest, strongest, fastest, but they play with an amazing drive. There's something that sets them apart in the way they approach the game. They've got heart. We say, I love you with all my heart. And that's, it's kind of funny because biologically, the heart doesn't produce any conscious thought. But what we're trying to communicate is that from the essence of my being, with all that I am, from the very center of my life, I love you. Now that kind of language, talking about the heart that way, that's not unique to us. We, we didn't invent that here in modern America. We find it actually in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, the, the scripture speaks of the heart as the center of who we really are, the seat of our emotions. We're, we're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when Jesus Christ walked the earth, he constantly pointed to the heart. He gave emphasis to the heart. He wasn't concerned. Jesus wasn't concerned with outward religion. He, he, really, he really had a, a quite a, an, an antagonistic perspective of outward religion. He fought against that. What his concern was, it was the inner person, the person of the heart. In fact, Jesus said, that what is in your heart is what actually produces your outward behavior, whether good or bad. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Our good and bad deeds come from what's within the heart. Now, there, there may not be a more stark example of Jesus' approach than right here in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus exposes the human heart, and he basically paints us into a corner, that if you and I if, if I, if I start to think that maybe I can skate by on just good external behavior, Jesus is going to show me, he's going to show us in Matthew 5, what the heart of the matter really is, that it's all about the heart, that it begins and ends in the heart, and we can't externally obey God if our heart doesn't love and honor him. That's what Matthew 5 is all about. And we see it in a very piercing way, in a very abrasive way, right here in Matthew 5 verse 21. This is a difficult scripture. I'll just tell you up front. 
but it's one that can be liberating. It's one that actually can be life-changing if we're willing to see what Jesus says. So he's going to get down to the heart right here. Look at verse 21. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, you've heard it said, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now, real quick, where would Jesus' Jewish hearers have heard that? These, these, these disciples, where would they have heard, you shall not murder? Well, it's from the Bible. This wasn't some cultural belief system. This is, the, this is from the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Charlton Heston walked down the mountain with those tablets, right? And this was one of them. You shall not murder. And, and we talked about this before, that Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill it. And so Jesus is not saying that that law or command is somehow wrong or outdated. He's just saying, this is what you've heard. This is the law. But now Jesus is going to take us to the true heart of this law. Look at verse 22. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. How are we doing so far <laughs> through verse 22? <laughs> when Jesus says, you shall not murder, we all clear that hurdle pretty easily, I think, I hope. If that's not true of you, don't tell me. But when, when the Bible says, you shall not murder, that's one of those commands that most of us feel pretty good about. We've checked that box. But see, then Jesus makes a statement like this. What are we supposed to do with this? Everyone who is angry with his brother who says you good for nothing or you fool, Jesus says that person is guilty enough to go to hell. What kind of impossible standard is this? I mean, Jesus, you were supposed to come and make things easier. And now you've made them impossibly difficult. What's going on here? Well, before we all give up and go home... Let's, let's dig a little. Let's try to really understand this. We need to understand this. Remember what Jesus is doing here. He's not changing the subject. When he says, you shall not murder, he doesn't deviate now to talk about something different. He's talking about murder at the heart of it. What, he, he's trying to get to the core of that command that all of his hearers would have known by heart, that we know by heart. We know murder is obviously externally wrong. But where does it come from? What's at the heart of it? Where does it originate? And Jesus is saying right here that murder comes from anger and hatred and contempt. And those are matters of the heart. Those are issues of the heart. If you're angry with your brother, Jesus says, now that term brother is not, does not specifically mean family, an actual biological brother. Typically in the Bible, that, that term brother means a fellow disciple, a fellow church member, a fellow Christian. But if you're angry with that kind of person in your life, Jesus says that that, that anger is like murder in seed form. That anger is like murder in seed form form. It's in the soil of your heart. Perhaps it hasn't sprouted fully, but it's in there. And I'm going to quote from one of the commentaries here that, that is, I think is really helpful on this verse. What Jesus is describing right here is, quote, a brooding, simmering anger 
that is nurtured and not allowed to die. It, it is seen in the holding of a grudge, in the smoldering bitterness that refuses to forgive. It is the anger that cherishes resentment and does not want reconciliation. So we might argue at this point. I might be tempted to argue and say, now wait a minute, Jesus got angry. I, you know, I remember that story where Jesus went into the temple and threw the tables over and, and you know, had a whip in his hand and, and drove these people out of the temple. He was angry. Was he breaking his own rule? God gets angry. We see God get angry, especially, you know, in the Old Testament. God gets angry at, uh, at Israel and at pagan nations who, you know, rebel against him. But, but I, I think we all know the difference here. That, that there is such a thing as righteous anger, which means you are angry at sin. Jesus was angry at sin. God gets angry at sin. And that is not the same thing here. That's, that's what we call righteous anger. If somebody harmed your child, if somebody robbed your home, you would be justifiably angry. I don't think anybody would argue that that would be wrong for you to be angry. Of course you'd be angry. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a sinful anger that we direct at another person. We make another person our target. And that anger just eats us up on the inside. And perhaps that, that, that anger never explodes into murderous rage. We never act it out in its fullest measure. But the point is, listen, that God has a standard and that God's standard is more than just the external obvious act of murder. God's standard is about the heart, and in this, our heart condemns us. And to make his point, Jesus uses two, what would have been perhaps common phrases for him in his culture, two phrases that make his point. He says, if you call someone a good-for-nothing or a fool, then you are guilty before God, guilty enough to go to hell. Now, wait a minute. This, to me, seems excessive. I mean, what's the harm here? These kind of phrases, good for nothing, fool. Some of us said much worse than that before church this morning. Crossing the spillway. We talked about people like this who, who, who cut us off on the way to church. I mean, what, what's, what's Jesus trying to say here? Man, is, is, is the bar really that high? Now, we shouldn't get lost in semantics as if those two particular phrases have a special meaning that we need to avoid. Because Jesus is making a point here that, that he's going beyond a simple concept of anger and he's talking about something we call contempt. Okay, now with that word contempt, we don't hear it perhaps a whole lot outside the courtroom. But to, to hold someone in contempt means that you look at another person as worthless. They are worthless in your eyes. I don't care if you live or die. I have that low of an opinion, that low of an esteem of another person. And contempt is not just that I don't care about a person, but I actively root for them to fail. See, contempt is a desire in my heart that I would delight to see bad things happen to this person. Now, don't act like we've never done this. That we, that we enjoy seeing someone fail and enjoy seeing someone uh, in their life circumstances turn south. See, this is the soil. This, this soil of contempt 
This is the soil of the heart that produces racism and sexism and mocking and slander, you name it. It harbors ill will toward another person, whether they really deserve it or not, whether I really even know them or not. This is the soil of murder that, that, that is in the human heart. And so Jesus is making a, a, a really big important point here. What he's saying is this, the condition of your heart is what matters most to God. You don't get special credit from God just because you haven't murdered somebody. That's not the bar. If there is murder in my heart, even if it's just in seed form, then I have violated the heart of God's law. I've become something that I don't like to think about. I don't think of myself as a murderer because I've never committed a murder. But Jesus says I'm guilty. There is poison within me that has overtaken me and it has to be eradicated. Now I know, I don't have to know you well to know that you're guilty of this because I am too. And Jesus does this on purpose. Jesus says this here in Matthew 5, 22. He says it in such a way that he knows that everybody on earth is guilty here. There's not a person who's ever lived, save for Jesus. There's not a person who's ever lived who can meet this standard, who can succeed when it comes to verse 22. Jesus knows that. And so before we move on, before Jesus takes us to a point of application, we need a little encouragement, okay? You could use it. I need it too. Let, let me encourage you in this, that things are perhaps not as dire as they seem in verse 22, because something's been done. I, I'm going to read to you from 1 John chapter 3. The Apostle John, now many, many years later, after these words were spoken in the Sermon on the Mount, John is an old man writing to the church. 1 John verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to what he says. He says, We know, talking to Christians, we know that we have passed out of death into life. We are saved. We know it. Because we love the brethren. In other words, because of the way we love our fellow Christians, it validates our salvation. He who does not love abides in death, John says. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But we know love by this. We know love by this that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Isn't that an amazing scripture? John is echoing Jesus, isn't he? He says that hatred is a form of murder, but you notice the contrast that John gives us. He gives us the contrast of love. The opposite of murder is not to avoid murder. <laughs> he says the opposite of murder is love. Love. And here's why, because think about it. Murder takes someone else's life. That's, that's obvious, right? Murder takes someone else's life. But love, according to John, love gives its own life for someone else. I mean, let me just say that again. Murder or hatred takes someone else's life, but love gives its own life for someone else. How do we know that's true? Because it's been done for us. John reminds us that Jesus himself 
laid down his life for us. And that is the antidote to our hatred and our contempt, the seeds of murder in our hearts. Listen, you're not going to change the problem of Matthew 5.22, the condition of your murderous heart. You're not going to change that by simply trying to think differently, by simply trying to will yourself to be less hateful and contemptuous and to be more loving. It doesn't work that way. We don't change by trying harder. We are changed by coming to Jesus the one who gave himself to be unjustly murdered. That's what it was. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was being murdered. He was on the other side of things, and yet he submitted to that end. That was his choice. That was his mission, is to come and to be killed so that he, through his death, might give us perfect forgiveness and a changed heart. See, only... In, only when we come into contact with perfect love can we ourselves become loving. All this anger and contempt and hatred that is in our hearts, it will not go away on its own. We can't will it to go away. We've got to come into contact with perfect love, with perfect grace. And John says in 1 John 3, something will change. He says, we will love others to the degree that we've been loved by Jesus. Because Jesus laid down his life for us, we will lay our lives down for the brethren. You see the amazing change that's taken place? We're not hateful, we're not, we're not full of contempt, we're actually self-giving. We lay our lives down for the sake of others. I want you to be encouraged in that, because that is our goal and that is possible because of what's been done for us, okay? But now let's, let's, let's come back to Jesus' application because Jesus gives us an interesting application. His, his response to our problem in Matthew 5.22 is not stop feeling these feelings. That's not an application. That wouldn't help us. We can't just stop, right? Jesus gives us a very, a very tangible application. Look at verse 23. Two different things Jesus tells us to do or examples that he gives. Verse 23, he says, Therefore... If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Jesus says, okay, suppose you're at church worshiping God. You're, you're doing the right, good Christian religious thing, right? And even beyond that, you're, you're, you're presenting your offering to God. This is the height of religious devotion right here in this moment. You're making a sacrifice. You're obeying God. And yet, there is unresolved unres- uh, conflict in your life. There is a brother or sister in Christ who has something against you. You have wronged them whether you did it intentionally or not, whether it was a really big deal or a really small issue, Jesus says, drop your offering at the altar. Drop it right away. Leave church and go be reconciled. Now, we might might look at this and, and think of this as being kind of irreverent. Nothing should disrupt the worship of God. You know, I know I can't get up in the middle of church and walk out. You know, that'd be very rude. That'd be irreverent to God. 
But what Jesus is saying here, listen, he's saying, if we have sin-stained relationships, then our worship is hollow. It's incomplete. God is not pleased. If, if there's no repentance, if there's no forgiveness in my human relationships, God is not pleased with me going through the motions at church. Jesus says, put church on hold. Put it on hold and go and make it right. Now, I've never really thought about this verse this way before, but, but this week I've thought about it, and it's really convicting to me that it's very easy for me and, and for you, it's very easy for us to use church, to use spirituality as a mask for brokenness, as a mask for sin. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of this, okay? That we can come here, we can come into church and smile and shake hands and button ourselves up. We sing the songs. We maybe even drop a check in the, in the, the giving box. And all the while, we are broken off with people that we're called to love. We're, we're doing all the church things that we're supposed to do and looking very good as we do them, but all the while there's something very broken in our relationships. D.A. Carson speaks to this. He says, We love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, and Jesus will have none of it. We love to substitute church stuff, religious stuff, for the real issues at work in our hearts and our lives. We try to let church somehow shroud those things, mask those things, and Jesus won't allow us to do it. That's why Jesus says, walk right out of church. If that's what it takes, leave your offering and go make it right. Some of y'all are maybe looking for an opportunity to walk out on this sermon already, and now I'm giving you one. Some of us, and I mean this, and, and, and it may be more discreet than that. Okay, you don't have to get up in the middle of the sermon necessarily, but you might. You might. And, and some of y'all, this is your application today. This is your challenge today. Some of us, we need to pick up the phone today. We need to schedule a lunch today, drive across town today and go make things right. Go seek forgiveness, ask forgiveness, or perhaps grant forgiveness. That there, there ought to be for us an urgency in this. And that's, see, that's what Jesus kind of underscores in the last thing he says. Jesus gives us what we just saw, kind of a spiritual application. Now he gives us a very practical, almost almost too practical kind of an application. It doesn't seem very spiritual. Look at verse 25. He says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. Uh, in this example, Jesus is not talking about your brother, is he? He's talking about your opponent. And so perhaps right here, you're dealing in this case, in this application, you're dealing with a person who does not share your faith. They don't share your worldview. Clearly, they are against you. They're taking you to court. And Jesus says, make friends quickly with this person. In the event that the law works against you, you may end up in jail. You may end up in a very unfavorable position. And so Jesus says, try to reconcile this thing as quickly as you can. Now, that doesn't seem very spiritual, right? But I think what Jesus is trying to communicate is this. 
This is practical wisdom, but it's urgent. You see how urgent it is? That you're on the way to court. You don't know what's going to happen. Perhaps you're going to end up on the wrong side of this. You get it resolved. You do whatever it is in your power to, to, uh, to, to get this circumstance, this situation, this problem figured out. There's an urgency in our reconciliation. Jesus is calling us to it. Maybe there's a misunderstanding that can be resolved. Maybe a friendship can come out of it. That's what Jesus says. At least it's possible. But as much as it's in your power, you make peace with all people. Now think about it, y'all, this way. Uh, if If you and I, if we were in that final situation, if we were on the way to court... And we were not feeling good about our circumstance here. Like, we're, we're going to end up on the wrong side of this. We'd be doing everything in our power. We'd be scrambling, trying to reconcile, trying to make this thing work, right? Well, if we would approach that situation with such urgency, why would we not approach the other? The, the more spiritual application that came before it. That I'm there in church, I recognize someone has something against me. Am I, am, I, am I scrambling to go make it right? Am I urgently approaching that situation the same way I would the other? You see the point he's making? There's an urgency of personal reconciliation. That's the application Jesus gives us. He doesn't give us a very broad, touchy-feely, kind of just private in your own heart application. He says, no, step across the line and love people well. Reconcile. Right? Be at peace. Y'all, when we read scriptures like this, and in the Sermon on the Mount is full of them, we, I hope we do, we've got to feel the sharp edge of Jesus here. You know what I mean when I say that? Jesus comes with a sharp edge, as opposed to uh, the dull edge, the dull blade of religion, of self-made religion. And, and here's what I mean. When I say that religion kind of has a dull blade to it, you and I can be very religious. We can be nice. We can, we can make the rest of the world think that we're very good. Most of us can, can maneuver life well enough that people will generally think well of us. We're good and decent people. We're polite. We're punctual. We go to church. We give to the church. We don't, we don't cheat on our taxes. We don't speed through school zones. We run or walk 5Ks for heart disease, right? We do those things. We have a Bible. We keep it close by. We pray before meals. When we sing our favorite college fight songs, you know, some of those fight songs have, you know, kind of sort of bad words in them. We don't sing. When the the time comes, we say dang and heck. We don't sing the bad words because we're good, right? You know what I'm talking about? We're good people. And maybe those things are good. I mean, those things are fine. But y'all, there's such a dull edge on all of that. Because really, none of those things I just mentioned require a transformed heart. Anybody can be nice and religious. And at the same time, be guilty of everything Jesus is talking about today. I can be nice and religious and still be dead guilty of harboring the seeds of murder in my heart. And so Jesus, listen, Jesus brings a sharp edge with him. And we see it, and I'm sure we all feel it in a scripture like this. He pierces us to the heart because God is in no way content with us being superficially good people. That is not the bar that God gives to us. He wants us to be righteous people. 
He wants us to be righteous. Jesus said, your righteousness must surpass the self-made righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day. It's not good enough to just be a buttoned-up religious-looking person. God's desire is to conform us to the heart and the character of Jesus himself. And that's why we need scriptures like this one today, because they pierce right through us. They cut deep and they cut straight. There's no way out of this. There's no wiggle room. And we're reminded, I hope today, that we desperately need Jesus to save us and change us. We have no other alternative. We have no way out unless Jesus Christ saves us and unless he brings transformation to us. You need this today, and so does your preacher. I need it too. I need it every bit as much as you do, maybe even more. Can I just tell you guys, oh man, not not long ago, maybe just in the last couple of years, uh, I had a conflict in my life, and it really ate me up. I felt like I'd been wronged. I felt, I honestly felt embarrassed and there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, there's really, there was nothing that I could do to somehow manipulate that situation and make it right, just make it go away. And so what did I do? I chose to stew over it. I cranked up the crock pot within me and I just let it bubble up constantly. I, I, I made that person my target in my heart. Now, I never did anything externally. I never did, I never actually acted anything out externally, but the anger and the contempt in my heart was absolutely corrosive. It ate me up. And I y'all, I would I'd be out mowing the lawn, I'd be driving down the road, I'd be laying awake in bed at night just having always these imaginary conversations in my mind. These arguments where I was telling this person off, I was winning, I was being vindicated. We've all done that. I know we all do that. And y'all, all the while, all throughout that time, I was preaching sermons. <laughs> I was praying for other people's problems. I was doing the Lord's work. Pastor York. When that stuff was going on in my heart. I, I truly needed Jesus to cut into me, to bring the sharp edge of his truth and cut into my heart. I still do. I need it today, and we all do. Because the heart of the matter is more than just avoiding the extreme. You shall not murder. Okay, well, we've cleared that bar. Good for us. Good for us. It's certainly better to not murder, right? The world's a better place because we haven't committed that sin, that crime, okay? But the heart of the command, the heart of the command is love. Not just avoidance of sin, but it's love. A love that is self-giving. A love that forgives. A love that seeks forgiveness when we've wronged others. It's a love that reconciles. It's a love that makes peace. It's a love that does for others what Jesus has done for us. Let me say that again. This is a love that does for others what Jesus in his perfect love has done for you. Now, I've said it several times how Jesus's words cut us very sharply here. I know we all feel it in a sermon like this. But here's the beauty of the gospel. And let's close with this. The beauty of the gospel. Gospel means good news, not good advice on how to improve 
good news about something that has already been done. That's the gospel. And the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. The one who cuts us, in this case Jesus, who cuts us very painfully today, he is also the one who heals us. Do you know that to be true? Like a, like a painful incision, but, but it removes a cancerous tumor. The pain is for our healing and for our flourishing. Listen, the, the words that we've read today condemn us. These words condemn us, but the one who spoke these words gave his life to redeem us, that we might not be condemned. In fact, Jesus said that about himself. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, I have not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. And so his words condemn us. They show us just how truly lost and needy we are. But the one who spoke those words laid down his life on the cross that we might not be condemned as we deserve, but that we might be saved. Y'all, listen, our, our anger, our hatred, our contempt, those things ruin us. We're guilty, but the blood of Christ makes our hearts pure, removes our guilt. And so what's my point? You and I, we, we've got to truly embrace Jesus here. I mean, really. We've got to embrace the truth about ourselves, that, that we are guilty, that we have no way out, but also embrace the truth, the much greater truth that says, all that we need has been accomplished on our behalf. To embrace His grace and His love and His mercy, what He's done for us, that He might rescue us and save us and purify us. And now, He gives us the ability, the capacity to be different. He gives us a new heart. See, you and I, we don't have to continue to live in verse 22, in anger and hatred and contempt. No. Because we've been saved and we are being changed. And that's what it means. We've got to embrace all of that. Not just Jesus to save us from our sins, but to embrace the Savior who can change our sinful hearts and bring about a love, a true love, that changes how we relate. Tangibly how we relate, yes, but also just how we, how we think and how we feel in our hearts. So that the seeds of murder might be uprooted. And let me encourage us in this. Jesus does not want to just renovate your life. He didn't want to just make improvements here and there. In this particular scripture, the seeds of murder, which we all have in the soil of our hearts, Jesus wants to have them out, uproot them, so that new seeds might be planted, seeds of love that will blossom and bloom into, into a life of reconciling love. That's why 1 John 3 is so helpful to us today. That what John says, listen, we know love by this. We know love. How do we know it? Because we've seen it. we felt it. It's been given to us. Jesus himself laid down his life for you. That's love. That's true love. And therefore, we can now lay down our lives for the brethren. Because of what's been done for us, now we can do the same for others. You know, y'all, it's, it's hard to hate somebody when you're giving your life for them, isn't it? It's hard to have contempt for another person, to have a low view of them when you're serving them and loving them and seeking reconciliation. It's awfully hard to carry both of those things in your heart at once. 
Jesus wants to uproot the one in favor of the new life, the new heart, the new self, to bring about this kind of transformation that only he can produce. And so let's pray. Would you pray with me for the kind of love that comes from Christ that leaves no room for these seeds of murder? We should want this, but we need to beg Jesus for this because it will not come from us. It has to come from him that the reconciling love of Jesus would be the defining characteristic of our hearts. No one is this way by default. No one becomes this way simply by effort. This is transforming grace. And let's pray that Jesus would give it to us in full. Father, we, we come to you this morning and we just have to, I hope we're all honest enough to acknowledge that we are, we're done we're done for. Matthew 5.22, we, no one escapes. Some of us uh, are, we, we're, we're guilty right where we sit, that there's this simmering, brooding uh, darkness in our hearts that we just, we, we, that we hold on to. We refuse to let it go. And uh, it's eating us alive. It's hurting our relationships. It's hurting our Christian witness. It's, it's shrouding our, our, our relationship with you. It's, just, it's, it's broken us off so badly. And Lord, a lot of us know exactly what that is because we're, we're there. And so I pray, we pray right now that, that Lord, you in your, in your mercy, we know we're condemned. We know we're guilty. But Lord, would you in your mercy show us, remind us, of what you've done for us right in the middle of all of this ugliness in our hearts. Lord, you did not condemn us as we deserved. You laid down your life to save us. And if, Lord, if if you would love us that much to be murdered on our behalf so that we could have life, if, if you would love us that much, then we pray, Lord, for the grace to take on that kind of heart for ourselves, to take on that kind of love. That, Lord, where we, where we kind of have this perverse enjoyment of seeing other people fail, oh, Lord, show us the grace, the grace that, 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 that uproots that ugliness. I don't want to live that way. That, Lord, if, if we delight to hold on to things that have been done against us and we will not forgive, we just won't do it. Lord, show us that, that that's, that's not how you treated us. And if you had, had, if you had that attitude, that I just won't forgive, that, Lord, we'd still be lost in our sins. And if we're unwilling to step across the line and ask forgiveness for the wrongs that we've done, then, Lord, show us, the, show us that, that we're, we're, we're simply missing the heart of the gospel and, and the joy of reconciliation. That somehow we're holding on to things that don't make any sense. Why would we hold on to these things in light of all that's been done for us in Jesus Christ? And so, Lord, bring us to our senses on this and, and help us to apply it, Father. That it is, it is not our, our desire to, to pursue reconciliation. It's hard, it's, it's awkward, it's difficult, it's a knock on our pride. Oh, but, but Jesus changes all these things. 
And Lord, as you give us a clearer picture of how wonderful our Savior is, then Lord, bring this transforming grace to us that we might be different, truly different. And we pray that for our sake, of course, yes, we want our hearts to change, but also, Lord, if we would become this kind of community, these kind of people, loving, reconciling people, Lord, others would see your grace too. How could they not? And so, Lord, we pray this. We pray this for us, yes, but we also pray it for the sake of the world, that others, as they witness this grace in our lives, they might turn and see you and glorify you as well. Lord, we desperately need it. We ask, Lord, that you'd be pleased to produce it um, in in a way that only you can. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.